for this week's edition for the Wise Up podcast. As a reminder, Wise Up is my platform to educate the South Asian and Muslim communities about Texas and national politics. You can check out my Wise Up Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, my handle is WiseUp, W-I-S-E-U-P, which is one word. Find my podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. They're all under the name Wise Up, one word, along with my weekly segment on Radio Azad. Remember everyone, let's become educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. So today's segment is called The Ambassador's Obligation. I'll be discussing the latest political news, and we have another interview today with Mustafa Tamiz. Mr. Tamiz has been involved in Texas politics, mostly in the Houston region, for a very long time. He's also been named by the Texas Monthly Magazine as one of the five political players to watch for in Texas. But first, let's start with the political news of the week. So first off, let's start with the Supreme Court ruling that happened last week. So Texas currently draws their districts so that they're equal in population. There were two voters from Texas that argued Texas should be divided by eligible voters. And what they mean is that eligible voters are those that are over the age of 18 and hold a U.S. citizenship. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled that Texas's current drawing of districts should be upheld. Speaking of the Supreme Court, there has been no update on Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court nominee. If you recall, he was nominated by President Obama to replace Justice Scalia for the Supreme Court. His nomination really hasn't gone any further. In Florida, we had the Governor Rick Scott put out an ad recently. So there was a video before that showed a lady at Starbucks that yelled at Governor Scott that she didn't have any health insurance because of him, that there were no good jobs in Florida, and she ended up calling him pretty crude names. He decided to respond with an ad that basically ridiculed her, and the press found this to be quite interesting behavior. I'm sure if you Google it online, you can find the ad. Moving on to one of our favorite people, Donald Trump. His kids didn't register in time to vote for their dad for the New York primary, which is on April 19th. And Donald Trump basically said that it was their responsibility to sign up to vote for the primary and that they didn't do so and that they were really, really sorry about it. Of course, the New York primary is coming up in one week, and Donald Trump is leading in New York, so is Hillary Clinton. Moving on to the primaries, last week we had the Wisconsin primary in which Ted Cruz won, so it just seems more likely that there will be a contested convention. Bernie Sanders also won by a good margin. It looks like New York next week is going to be a big turning point. Also, what was really big, which was international, were the Panama Papers. They were basically papers that got leaked from a law firm that was offshore that held a lot of... Um, companies or very wealthy people's money in offshore accounts, so they were basically evading paying taxes. And the repercussions of it, the Iceland prime minister had to resign once um, the people of Iceland found out. The British prime minister is currently being questioned by parliament this week. Nawaz Sharif, who is the prime minister of Pakistan, was on there but didn't really face any repercussions in Pakistan. We haven't heard any major American politicians yet, but there are still tons of documents for the American media to go through, so I guess time will tell. 
Meanwhile, as we've been talking about the Contessa Convention, Paul Ryan, who is the current Speaker of the House, is saying that if there's a contested Republican convention, he won't be running for president. But the New York Times is reporting that he's been running a parallel operation to counter Donald Trump. He's been doing fundraisers and raising money. So maybe he's doing it to help rebuild a divided Republican platform. Maybe he's, you know, going to run for as the Rep Republican presidential nominee. I guess only time will tell. Finally, today, protesters marched from Philadelphia to the D.C. Capitol to fight big money in politics as part of Democracy Spring here in America. Moving on to Texas politics, on Monday, the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton will now be investigated by the Security Exchange Committee for securities fraud. It's in regards to the same matter being litigated in the Collin County Courts. Also, the Texas Child Protective Services, CPS, has been underfunded for a very, very long time. It's been a high turnover rate for social workers who are leaving the job in mass numbers. Governor Abbott has announced he'll be working on overhauling the system due to many children dying under state care. I think this is a great reform Governor Abbott is doing, and I really hope one day in the future to actually have a full-length discussion about Texas CPS because I think it's something we should really focus on as a community and I hope to have a more detailed segment to follow. Well, that's the latest update on this week's political news. Let's move on to today's interview with Mr. Mustafa Tamiz. Joining me today is Mustafa Tamiz. Mr. Tamiz has long been politically active in the Houston community and has an extensive and impressive resume. Texas Monthly Magazine names him one of the five political players to watch in Texas. He's advised election campaigns for state legislators, mayors, members of Congress, and various public institutions. He's also the co-chair of the South Asian Chamber of Commerce and is currently a news analyst and contributor for the Houston Chronicle, the Texas Tribune, and Fox 26. He also co-hosts a popular Sunday morning show on Fox 26 called The Roundup. He is also the founder of Outre Outreach Strategist, which is a communications and public affairs consulting service. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Tamiz. Well, thank you for having us. So I wanted to start um, with a brief introduction about your political life. You've been active for so many years, and I just you know, would love to know a little bit of history of how that began and how you've come so far. Well, I, I tell you, um, when I think back, it was all uh, by accident. I never really intended to be in politics. Um, but I started to volunteer uh, on different campaigns and working within our community to get people organized. And I ended up working for Mayor Lee Brown, who was the incumbent mayor of Houston, and was in a race against a guy named Orlando Sanchez, uh, who was uh, very heavily supported by the Bush family. Uh, and in that race, uh, you know, I learned a great deal. But but the outcome was the mayor Brown was successful, and um, some outside folks gave me a lot of credit for the work that that was done in the campaign. Some of it, I, I must say, was undeserved. Um, but we'll take the public out accolades. Okay, so. You say that you've worked on different campaigns. Were they mostly Democratic, Republican, or have you worked on a variety of both? Well, my career for the, uh, um, the last 10 years or so 
most of the political campaigns I've worked on are, are Democratic. Uh, and other than the nonpartisan races, so I've, I've worked for, uh, uh, as I mentioned, Mayor Lee Brown, but I've also was campaign manager for Bill White when he was mayor of Houston. So I was his campaign manager and political director. I did the race for Congressman Nick Lanson against uh, Tom DeLay uh, in 2006 and a number of congressional races, state house races, all Democrats with the exception of people that were running in nonpartisan races. Oh, that's very interesting. So, um, as you've been working, you were probably one of the very first South Asians, I guess, to be working in the political sector in Texas. How have you seen the current demographics of South Asians and Muslims change throughout the years that you've been working? Well, Texas has the third largest Asian population after California and New York. What's different about Texas and what's unique about it is that the South Asian population has a, a larger priority than East Asians. And, and that makes Texas very unique um, that the Asian American population has more South Asians than East Asians. And, you know, as you, you know, as you know, we, we live in a very diverse state. It's a majority minority state. Uh, and that happened in 2000, I think about 2004. And mm -hmm. as you look forward, uh, this nation will look very much like Texas. By 2044, uh, the United States will be a majority-minority country. And that has a, a huge um, demographic implication, but it also has a huge implication for the Asian-American community. Um, Pew recently did a study where they showed that by 2065, Asian-Americans will outpace first-generation Latinos. That means that there will be more Asian-Americans that are first generation than Hispanics in the United States. So Texas, having the third largest Asian population, has one of the fastest Asian-American population uh, growing, and South Asians being the part of it, then the future of this nation in a big way is going to be shaped by the uh, South Asian voters. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't hear about this study. In 2025, first-generation Asian-Americans will be more than the Hispanic in, population. In, in, in 2065. In oh, 2065. 2065. So, okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, so you, you know, you're uh, <laughs> you're probably going to be around to to uh, to witness it. Uh, people like me might not be around by then. <laughs> yeah, I was like 2025. That's not far away at all. That's less than 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, but but I tell you, when you think about it, 2065 is 49 years from now. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, that's when there'll be empowerment within the Asian or the South Asian community. It just shows you that the 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 growth rate uh, is is so phenomenal that within five decades, that we're likely to, you know we're going to outplace Hispanics in this nation as, as first generation. So. It tells you that there's a lot of exciting things happening, and Texas is the hub of that growth. Right, and that's why you have all of these organizations, such as Battleground Texas, that's trying to recruit these minority organizations and groups uh, in that long-term future. Am I correct? Yeah, and, and that's, you know, the, the prize of Texas is that, you know, if, if the Democrats uh, uh, turn to state purple and blue, it's not just that it eliminates a path for Republicans to, to get to the White House and because we have so many electoral votes in Texas, but it also means 
that you change the national conversation. And, and what I mean by that is that right now for a Democrat to get elected nationally, they generally have to go further right in a general election. So they begin to talk about tax cuts and things of that nature. Right. But if Texas becomes purple and blue, Republicans will have to go left in order to get elected in this country. So what we talk about, our national conversation, the priorities that we set, will change when Texas becomes uh, a more competitive state. And that's why there is a big push nationally to try to move Texas in that direction. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about changing the national conversation. That's a really interesting point to talk about and to think about. Well, and, and you know, one thing that uh, uh, sometimes voters and activists don't, don't realize is that it's not also it's not who wins and loses. It's 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 what you're talking about that matters. And this current election cycle, we see that someone like Bernie Sanders has changed the conversation, not just in the Democratic Party, but in our country. We're talking more about uh, income inequality than we ever had before, and it is the centerpiece of of, of you know, his campaign, so right. it became a big part of Hillary Clinton's campaign. And you see that also on the right in a, in a far more unpalatable uh, uh, terms with Donald Trump that immigration became such a big thing, this xenophobia against Muslims became such a big thing because that was part of Donald Trump's campaign. And, and so whether he wins or loses, um, there is a sense that we have as a nation have dialed back our progressive attitudes, our inclusive attitudes towards all minorities because of what's happening in the Republican Party right now. That's so true. You, I mean, I'm still relatively young, but I feel like I didn't feel that racism that I feel now. Like, even after 9-11, it was, you know, I was in high school and it was still, you, you had some fears, but I feel like those fears have just exponentially increased with this 2016 election, what the Republican rhetoric has been. And also going back to what you said about Bernie Sanders, I definitely think my generation is huge Bernie Sanders supporters, especially when it comes to income inequality, because I think for my generation, it's been all about the loans. The school loans have been a huge thing. And I think it's interesting to note how Hillary Clinton had kind of discussed about college, but it wasn't a big part of her platform. And now it really has become a main part of her platform to try and change that. And, and, that's, and that's really why it's important, regardless of um, you know, how old we are, what professions we're in, what nonprofits we're part of, or, or what community issues we care about. It's important to be part of the political process. It's important to vote. It's important to uh, participate financially if you can. Uh, it's important to volunteer and campaign in any, any, any part, because politics, uh, is at the core of, of, of how in a civil society you can make change. And for small minority communities like ours, uh, it's very important that we're active and we're visible uh, because when we defend our civil rights, when we defend uh, policy uh, you know, that, that benefits small minority communities, uh, it benefits this nation. And so we, as, as South Asians, as Muslim Americans, um, have a role to play in improving and, and, and growing the fabric of our nation. I agree with you, and that's definitely something I've been reiterating to my listeners. 
I wanted to also ask you, why do you feel that this current presidential race is so contentious compared to any other? Well, you know, there's there's a number of things happening that um, that in a way we're, we're, we're glossing over. When I started talking to you about the demographic shift, bulk uh-huh. of that demographic shift is happening in the south uh, and up the Appalachian Mountains. So if you look at, if you were to uh, imagine the map of the United States, you would see coming from Texas almost on a reverse six, uh, going around the, the eastern, uh, uh, you know, uh, eastern part of, of the United States, this huge demographic shift. And so it's making those that uh, are in the Anglo community very nervous because they're seeing that this nation is shifting demographically at such a rapid pace. They feel like that the country is changing. Um, uh-huh. Now when you pick up the phone to call the phone company or if you go to an ATM machine or you go to vote, not only you can do it with English, but you can also do it in Spanish. Right. And uh, in Harris County where I am in Houston, the ballot is in English, Spanish, Vietnamese, and Chinese. And for some people, um, they sense that as a threat. And so that's caused a lot of anxiety. And so part of what you're seeing coming in from Donald Trump and Ted Cruz on the Republican side, that that anxiety uh, is, is, is driving the xenophobic conversation. Right. And, you know, I've read a couple of articles about this. I think the New York Times and the Guardian um, have posted these articles, which I talked about a few weeks ago on my podcast, was the you know, white working Americans are not seeing any financial incentives or just any economic advantages. And then, as you stated, they're scared of the changing demographics. Do you think there's something we can do as a community to shift that change, like to shift their perception? One of the ideas I come up with is, you know, a lot of the industries that used to work in these areas ended up moving to other countries for cheap labor, and that's why they lost their jobs, and they just kind of fell into a rut. I thought, personally, maybe it would be a good idea for our communities to kind of invest in those areas. Like, we come up with great startups and businesses. Maybe that would be a good idea. What are your thoughts? Do you have alternative things that we could do? You know, there are a lot of things we're doing. A lot of people in our community um, are what they call job careers in, in the Republican vernacular. Uh, we are, you know, a community filled with a lot of small business owners that have created millions of jobs in this nation. And, you know, we are also innovators. The South Asian community has been the forefront uh, in the Silicon Valley industry. You know, where if you look at uh, uh, tech startups, you know, there's a, a big uh, chunk of that comes from, from people within the subcontinent that have, you know, came to the United States and went to school and, and started these great businesses. But the other part that I think is is causing that anxiety is, is what you were talking about, that the loss of jobs is not just the blue-collar jobs that have been lost um, through globalization, but many of the white-collar jobs uh, in the last decade have been eliminated because of automation. Uh, you might not remember this, but... Uh, People my generation or older remember that when we were at the turn of the century, there was this thing called Y2K, where yes. the software, <laughs> uh, yes, the softwares were being updated, uh, and so that group of uh, IT professionals never left the industry. And what they did was, after Y2K, they started working on uh, on creating different 
um, you know, software products to streamline businesses. And uh, through that innovation, many of the middle management positions, many of the supervisory positions that were like mid-skills or low-skills positions just were eliminated altogether. I'll give you an example. When I started my profession, I remember walking into a, a large law firm, and for every partner in that law firm, they used to have two secretaries, one to take shorthand dictation and the other one which was more like a legal assistant. And now you walk into the big firms now, uh, for every five partners, you might have one secretary rather than for every partner having two secretaries. And okay. Because now everybody's got their own laptop, they've got their own computer, they type their own briefs, they research is so much easier now than it used to be. So there's this whole sector of white-collar jobs that have just completely been, and they're never coming back. Right. Uh, and that's the second source of that anxiety uh, that Americans face, that one, the, there's been a huge demographic shift. Two, uh, because of globalization and the technology boom, many of those good-paying white-collar jobs have completely been eliminated. And that's you know, causes that divide between rich and poor. Um, and so that there's a lot of things that that make people nervous in our nation. Um, but the upside to this is that, you know, we um, have a great opportunity to engage uh, people, uh, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, in a meaningful conversation about, you know, who we are, where we come from, the, the values that we hold. Because every poll indicates that if a uh, if someone who's not from our faith knows a Muslim American, they're likely to have a much higher opinion of all Muslim Americans because they know that one person. So there's a great obligation we have to our neighbors, to our colleagues, to our coworkers is is to is to talk about faith and to talk about things that are that that are important to us. Right, and you know, I also wanted to ask. Since you've been in politics for such a long time, how have you seen Islamophobia evolve, like within the Texas government and national politics? Has it been like a, was it always there? Um, has it come on more suddenly? Well, I think look, I mean, post 9/11, you, you've seen an increase of that, and there's been a number of tangible things. Like there's uh, 18 states that have passed what they call Sharia ban laws. Right. Um, you know, there, 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 there's things that that uh, Mr. Trump and others have been saying the Republican primary that that is offensive. Um, at the right. same time, uh, we live uh, uh, in a nation that has been good to many of us. That uh, that you know you you can uh, pursue your American dream in this nation, um, and the Constitution is our our our, our biggest protection. Um, and I think over the long haul, we have a great contribution to make to the future of this nation, and we, we should work towards that. And that's why I encourage people that, you know, they should vote, they should participate in civic organizations, they should volunteer. Um, you know, our, our you know, if you follow our faith, then that means that we should be of service to our neighbors. Um, and that's really what our focus should be for, uh, for every generation uh, of Americans. I completely agree with you. And I also wanted to ask your personal experience that, you know, since you've been in politics so long and been so active, do you feel that many politicians and party uh, people 
change once they get to know you? Do you feel like their opinions change about Muslims or South Asians once they finally get to know who you are and not have such a negative viewpoint? Look, polling indicates um, that whenever you know someone from our community, you're you're likely to have a a higher um, uh, favorability numbers for for all of us. So Mm -hmm. it's really incumbent on us. We are are ambassadors uh, to every person we meet. So, you know, how we conduct ourselves, um, uh, you know, how we uh, are of service to, uh, to the nation is really important, especially now. Uh, especially that that people are hearing so many things uh, through this political cycle that it it makes it incumbent on all of us to to do our part to to do more community service to be more involved. Right, and on another note, what impact can we make? Like I know that you've mentioned that we are ambassadors, and people get to know us, so then they'll know about Islam or South Asians better and that we should be more civically engaged. But what do you say to those people who feel that their vote doesn't count or they just feel so dejected with all the, you know, racist comments that are being made? What do you say to them about how they can still make a difference, how they can still make an impact in the American community? Well, look, I mean, regardless of um, – I, I can, you know, I can point to lots of different races that I've worked on and, and people know about that – were won and lost by a handful of votes. So every vote counts and every vote matters. But but the bigger part about it, regardless of um, what one might feel is the impact or not, you know, our, our, our faith tradition, our culture teaches us to do the right thing, to be of service to others. And so I, I would say that this country has been good to, to, to many of us, that we have um, been able to build a, a, a strong life and uh, for, for ourselves, for for uh, future generations of South Asians uh, in the United States. So we have a sense of an obligation that we have to do our part and and, and give back. And and giving back to me means that you're part of the larger community, that you should not feel like that you're an outsider. You're as American as anybody else. And in, in, in feeling that way, in being that way, you also have an obligation like all Americans do, which is to vote, to participate, uh, to look out for your neighbor, to be of service to one another. That's so true, that we do have an obligation to give back. This country has given so much, at least to my parents who came here from Pakistan, and I'm first-generation American, and that's a big reason why I became involved in politics. And I hope and realize that people, other people will realize and understand this notion as well. Well, it's, it's just look. We're, we're uh, many many people have come in the '90s and in the in the in 2000, and so we're still new. Uh, many of us, um, you know, we're, we're still first generation. Many of us, and so there's a sense that the next generation will be empowered and do more. And I think that that's the wrong approach. I think each of us has a responsibility. Yeah. We can't count on the next generation to do something. It's like you're here. You're as American as anybody else, and therefore, um, you know, you must contribute and you, do, you must vote and do all the things um, uh, to make this country um, uh, even better than it is. I completely agree with you. Are there any last words you'd like to add? Well, I want to thank you for, for your leadership in, 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 in creating a conversation about politics 
and policy uh, within our state and, and within our community. It's, uh, it's really refreshing to see young people being involved in, in this process. So thank you for what you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. I feel like I've done so little compared to your very extensive and impressive resume. I hope one day I can achieve what you've achieved. Then now you just made me the old guy. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fine. I'm just kidding. But thank you. And, and, and thank you. Thanks for everybody that's listening. Yes, thank you so much. Well, that's my segment for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Musafa Tamis, for a great, great interview. The main takeaway I took from this interview is that we are ambassadors for our communities and our religions here in America. And, if, and we cannot wait for someone else to step in and fix our image. Individually, we all need to contribute to fix this. I also love the point he made, how we have an obligation to give back to our community. And the best way to do that is to get involved in our local communities. This doesn't mean we have to, you know, everyone needs to be involved in politics. While that is a great notion to have, but we can also invest in our schools, volunteer at local hospitals, or help out our veteran community. At the end of the day, as ambassadors for our communities, we have an obligation to give back to our local communities and our country. So I hope you all enjoyed today's segment. Thanks again for tuning in, and don't forget to check out my Facebook page and Twitter account, and my website, which is www.azrasiddiqui.com, A-Z-R-A-S-I-D-D-I-Q-I.com. Remember everyone, let's become educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hand.